It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Jim Neighbors episode of The Muppet Show. Welcome back to Muppeturgy. We are so glad to have you here with us. I am David Levy, and with me today are... Adam Grossworth. Christy Bauer. And Michal Richardson. We had a ton of business at the top of the show last week. All I will add is a thanks again and a plug for our friends at Extra Hot Great. As this episode of our show releases, the episode of their show with Muppet Thunderdome has come out and it is deranged and I had a ton of fun. So thanks guys for having me and please go listen to it unless you are of a weak constitution and don't want to hear us talk about Muppets meeting their violent ends. But honestly, who wouldn't? Today on Muppeturgy, we are talking about the Jim Neighbors episode of The Muppet Show. This was the sixth episode made and the sixth episode uh, in the Disney Plus order. If you're watching in order on Disney Plus, Rita Moreno has just happened, but because of our whole order kerfuffle, we released our episode on that show already. So you can go back and listen to that. Um, This was made in June of 1976, and it was the second aired in New York, so actually right after the Rita Moreno episode, on September 27th, 1976. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do, so it really makes me happy to introduce to you. So Jim Neighbors is one of those people who I think was super, super famous at the time of the show, and I would guess that most people today who weren't alive in the 70s probably don't necessarily know who he is. And I'm going to let Kermit introduce him because he did such a good job. Uh, we're real proud to have with us on the show tonight a gentleman who has two distinct personalities. He's a real country boy who became famous as Gomer Pyle, and also he sings everything from pop to opera. So let's give a real Muppet Show welcome to Jim Neighbors! Gomer Pyle, and forgive me for this, was the Frasier of his day in the sense that <laughs> oh, no. he was... He was a character who was added to the very popular Andy Griffith show a couple years into his run. And then he himself was so popular that he got a spinoff called Gomer Pyle USMC that ran for a number of years and actually ended after the Andy Griffith show itself had ended. The difference is that Gomer was sort of a pre-existing character from Jim's club act that they added to the show because one of the regular sidekicks on the show uh, had to take some time off, I believe, for health reasons. And so they just dropped Jim in, and he was so beloved by the audience that when the original actor was ready to come back, they needed to figure out what to do with him. The Andy Griffith Show, it occurs to me as something that some of our listeners may not be familiar with, although to me, it's one of the classic sitcoms right up there with I Love Lucy and Leave it to Beaver. Andy Griffith played a small-town sheriff in Mayberry. He was raising his son, Opie, with the help of his Aunt Bee, and he worked with Barney Fife, who was played by Don Knott. And it was just sort of a small-town community comedy, which sort of stood it in opposition to the big city comedy of something like I Love Lucy or The Honeymooners. And it was just, it was a phenomenon. It, it ran and ran and ran from 1960 to 1968. It had a spinoff after Andy Griffith left the show where it was renamed as Mayberry RFD. Gomer Pyle USMC actually ended up being so popular that by the end of the run, it was the second highest rated series in the United States. Jim was just like a huge beloved TV star. He eventually also became a recording star Uh, In the 70s, he released a number of albums. He did some theater. I don't think he ever played Broadway, but he was big on the regional circuit for a while. He also had a very special relationship with Carol Burnett, which I think Chrissy's going to tell us about. 
Yeah, I found a funny story in one of Carol Burnett's books, a book called In Such Good Company about the Carol Burnett show that she put out in 2016. She said, after each show, we would set up a table and a couple of chairs and autograph our personal eight by 10 photos for the folks who came to see us. One time after Jim had signed one of his pictures, a very excited fan clutched it to her bosom and blurted out, thank you, thank you, thank you. As soon as I get home, I'm going to hang this up on my wall right next to Jesus. Jim literally fell out of his chair. So yeah, Jim Neighbors' appeal was was very Southern and very squeaky, clean, wholesome. You're going to put him on the wall next to Jesus. And sometimes that ran counter to his abilities and the rest of his comedic palette. So I thought that was interesting. And it's also interesting, Carol considered him something of a good luck charm. She had him as a special guest star on the first episode of every season of of her show. And I believe he was also the godfather to one of her children. So, you know, they they were lifelong friends. And, and towards the end of his life, Carl Burnett even pulled strings when he needed a transplant to get him the organ that he needed. So a very close, loving relationship between these two titans of comedy. So we mentioned last week that he had done a one-season Sid and Marty Croft show opposite last week's guest, Ruth Buzzy. We did mention that he appeared with Carl Burnett, who is a future Mom show guest. He also made his stage debut, I believe, Opposite next week's Muppet Show guest star, Florence Henderson, doing The Music Man at the Burt Reynolds Dinner Theater in Jupiter, Florida, uh, which I think is just nifty. And something that I learned in researching this is that from 1972 to 2014, almost every single year, he opened the Indianapolis 500 race singing the song Back Home Again in Indiana. In person? In person. Neat. And then just the other thing is... He's uh, one of these rare people who's gay and an icon, but not a gay icon, if that makes sense. Because I think his appeal, which was really in that sort of cornpone comedy and also among lovers of kind of light classical music, sort of like the Josh Groban of his day, neither of which were really areas that had a lot of uh, gay engagement. But he himself was gay. He was sort of semi in the closet for, for much of his life. But he had a partner going back to the 70s. And when gay marriage became legal, they popped on a plane to Washington so that they could get married there. And they stayed together until Jim's death in 2017 at the age of 87. So it was one of those things I remember when he got married, it made some headlines because I, I don't know how publicly gay he had been until that. And for me, knowing him as Gomer Pyle, it was one of those like, oh, wow, I guess like there are gay people in Hollywood beyond the obvious, although maybe in retrospect, it was obvious. I don't know. Anyway, at the end of his life, he retired from showbiz and uh, owned a macadamia plantation in Maui, which he eventually sold to the National Tropical Botanical Garden, which is a conservationist organization. So uh, just all around a good guy. Hmm. We talked about this a bit with Ruth Buzzy, just the, what the monoculture was in the 70s and 80s, where, as with Laugh-In, like, I don't, I've never seen an episode of The Andy Griffith Show or Gomer What? Bob. I know. It's just not for me. And your rerun block was different because it was syndication and, and we didn't quite have Nick at Night yet until I was a little bit older. But, like, you, you knew who Gomer Powell was. Like, you, you could do the voice. Like, it, you didn't have to have ever seen it to know who Jim Neighbors was in the same way. And actually, I think even more so than Ruth Buzzy. I don't know that I had a clear sense of Ruth Buzzy was, but I knew the name. And I feel like, you know, 10-year-old me definitely knew who Gomer Powell was and that Jim Neighbors played him without understanding what that meant. I feel like Jim Neighbors maybe was a little more on the game show circuit than Ruth Buzzy was, and that might make the difference in terms of people our age. That's probably true, too. Why don't you so we did not care for last week's episode. <laughs> How did y'all think about this week's episode? I will just start to say that I have been doing my first watches of these on the DVDs uh, still because they have those little pop-up video trivia bits that I like. 
And I thought this episode was terrible. And then I went and watched it on Disney Plus and discovered that two sketches were cut from the DVDs that were not actually all that great, but they definitely helped, you know, make it feel uh, a little bit less, less useless. I enjoyed it. I didn't love it. Christy, what did you think? I'm in the same boat with you. I, I think it's fine. Really. I mean, my feeling is that the show goes on autopilot when they write to a performer's shtick rather than their ability. It's the same problem as the Connie Stevens episode. Like nothing about it is particularly surprising. And I think one of the strengths of the Muppets is they can, bring something surprising out of a performer. And I just don't think that happened here. And, you know, I, I think Jim neighbors is very adept and game and charming. It's just, I wish that they had given him something to do. That wasn't generally what is expected of Jim neighbors. David, how about you? I think I probably liked it the best of the four of us. Uh, It's not one of my all time favorites, but I laughed out loud more than I thought I would. And I found the closing number really charming and really appropriate, even though it is also written very specifically to the talents of the guest star. So maybe that's a point opposite what you are asserting. I don't know. But I liked it. It's not It's not an episode that I would put in front of someone if they said, show me an, a Muppet Show episode. But if I knew they liked Jim Neighbors, I would think that this is a not a bad example of what the Muppets can do. Michal? Yeah, there were a couple of things that I really loved about this episode, and then you know, there were the other 26 minutes of it. I, and those minutes were fine. I think that I'm going to mostly echo you guys in this, in that they thought that they were playing to Jim Neighbors' strengths, but it kind of was to the detriment of the episode. Um, and I, I mentioned this to some of you guys earlier, but something about the tone of this actually feels a little bit more like some of the modern writing for the Muppets that doesn't ever feel like it quite comes together. It doesn't seem like and everybody's aware what the guest star is doing there or what to have them do, or there's there's this urge to place people in situational sketches instead of just writing for the actual characters. The relationships don't feel like they're quite there. It just doesn't quite gel, and the Muppets are still finding their voice, as in some of the 2000 and 2010s writing for the Muppets, I feel. Did it feel to you like they were a little starstruck by Jim Neighbors in a way that they haven't been by some of the other stars? Maybe, but that feels weird. <laughs> it does feel weird, but I but I sort of wonder if that is maybe part of the problem. Like they seem very, very conscious of not only his persona, but like who he is and how popular he is. And maybe that made it a little scarier for them to push them to do things that are outside of their ordinary range whereas like with rita moreno even though she was i think as big if not a bigger star but maybe because she already has a bigger range they really went all out and and did every possible different kind of thing she can do so made for a broader more varied episode i mean gomer Pyle is at least as big as jesus so they had to pay him their proper respects All right, let's talk about some music. So our first musical number in this episode is, I believe, the first ever solo we see of Dr. Teeth. I want that green ammunition. That's the stuff for which I'm wishing. Fill my closets with deposits. I'm a demon in addition. Give me shekels, give me pesos. Let me see their smiling faces. Money, 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 money. So this is Money, which is a comedy song by Stan Freeberg and Ruby Raskin. It's a song with a storied history with the Muppets. They originally performed it on Sam and Friends, uh, which was Jim Henson's first TV project. And in that particular appearance, they lip synced to a Mel Blanc recording of Money, which we have a clip of. Don't want no loving. Don't want no kissing. 
Don't want no gal to call me honey. Don't want my name in the Hall of Fame. Just want a big fat pile of money. Give me that almighty dollar for that letters hear me holler. Give me buckets full of so weird to hear something, I assume, approximating Mel Blanc's actual voice. I mean, who knows? Really? I was thinking that, too. The history of Stan Freeberg and Jim Henson is worth looking up and reading about. Stan Freeberg was a, an early point of inspiration for Jim, and he was really pleased with the performance that they did of this song, and they ended up becoming friends. And Stan Freeberg actually sent Jim a telegram after seeing this and, and calling it one of the greatest acts I've ever seen, <laughs> which I think is adorable. This to me felt like a Rolf number, so it's interesting to learn that they had done this previously with different Muppets. I wonder at what point Jim decided to turn it into a Dr. Teeth number. Like everything, even the set felt like Rolf's set just with like a coat of paint on it. So I don't know, that just struck me as is unexpected. And I almost wonder if it was originally going to be Rolf and they realized they had another Rolf number already set for this episode and had to do the substitution. That's definitely my feeling on that. Character-wise, it feels really, really right to me, though, for Dr. Teeth to be... You know, he's sort of fame hungry and I don't know. I'm reading too much into it. <laughs> no, I agree. It definitely like as the song went on, it, it it made sense to have Dr. Teeth performing it, but just everything from the placement of the piano to like it just oh, yeah. you know, it felt like a typical Rolf sketch, only it wasn't Rolf. I mean, but part of the production of this was that he was kind of showboating with like stretching out his arms and pulling on the slot machine lever and playing it up, I think, in a way that Rolf would not it did make sense to him. Maybe they did decide to make the switch and realized how well it worked. Something that I learned in researching this episode, I never really gave much thought to Dr. Teeth's hands. I assumed that they were always on rods, but it turns out that most of the time they're actually not because I noticed he was playing the piano and maybe I've just never paid attention to whether or not he's playing the piano until this rewatch. But um, some of the time he does have rod hands and some of the time he has live hands so that he can play the piano. And I noticed that he had these giant fringed cuffs at the edge of his sleeves so that somebody could put their hands into his live hands and still have his scrawny little arms attached to his body, which was fascinating. I'm surprised at myself that I never noticed it before. They're pretty remarkable. I noticed it too, and and we'll have a GIF on the website. I've, I actually have noticed in later, like in more recent Muppet things, where they actually will often like digitally remove rods and, and other things, where I've actually seen like sleeves in black coming down from Dr. T's hands, which I think is the first time I noticed it. And in this, which where we've actually caught puppeteers heads sometimes, and this was not meant for a big screen in HD, I can't see them at all in this, even looking for them, even like, you know, going back to make a GIF and like clicking frame by frame. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. It's a really cool. It puppet. feels so seamless. It, it made me wonder how did they do that? I sort of wonder if there was chroma key involved because they were certainly experimenting with that on the Muppet show. In fact, one of the other numbers in this episode relies on it entirely. So it's possible that they just did the 1970s version of digitally removing the puppeteer. I'm going to actually you and say, I don't think that's chroma key in the dance arrows. I think it's um, just black. I think they're just wearing black on a black background. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Muppet wiki led me astray. <laughs> I could also be wrong, but no, you're probably my, right. Uh, that was my uh, high school tech kid read on it. I also wanted to point out that afterwards, Hilda tells Dr. Teeth, you were one hip dude. He's such a ladies' man. <laughs> <laughs> He's got everybody under his spell. So our next song is Gone with the Wind. Now all is gone. Gone is the rapture that thrilled my heart. Gone with the wind. 
the gladness that filled my heart just like a flame. So the the reason for the laugh track here is the premise of the the number in the show is Jim Neighbors is trying to sing this beautiful love song and everything is blowing away uh, around him. <laughs> it's a song, song from 1937, uh, music by Ali Rubel, lyrics by Herb Magidson, Magidson, pronunciation unclear. If somebody knows, come find me and tell me. Ali Rubel most famously wrote the music of Zippity Doodah for Song of the South and won the best Oscar for it in 1947. Herb Magison won the very first best song Oscar in 1934 for a song called The Continental from Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers movie called The Gay Divorcee. It's just another song with a lot of Muppet history. There's a Guy Smiley version of it from Sesame Street. Uh, there are various parodies of it that pop up later in Sesame Street. And interestingly enough, even though uh, it seems like it would be related to Gone with the Wind, the novel slash movie, it is not. Uh, though it's speculated that because it came out in, around the same time that the novel was out and uh, had won the Pulitzer Prize, that the phrase was just in the zeitgeist. And so there it was. I just wanted to point out, even though this is Jim Neighbors' real voice, it reminds me a lot of the uh, dubbed operatic singing by Charles Grodin and Miss Piggy's Fantasy and Great Muppet Caper. What if that's who dubbed him? What if we figured it out? Oh, that would be hilarious. So there's a great Tough Pigs article exploring the different theories of who the dubbing is because there's no one credited. And it's interesting that Jim Neighbors is not one of their theories. We should write them a letter. This bit to me feels like a Wayne and Wanda number, and it's sort of shocking to me that it's not a Wayne and Wanda number. And it also shows why Wayne and Wanda numbers usually end in 30 seconds. <laughs> it is hard to sustain this. Down to his puppet partner who gets blown away, who is basically Wanda. I mean, she's not Wanda, but... It, All the humanoid yes, Muppets look alike to you. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I'm just saying, like... She is know, of that style of Muppet. He could be Wayne, she could be Wanda. It's the same bit. Is Yes, I'm agreeing with David. She does make a great face when the wind blows straight in her face. It's very funny. This is one of the bits that's cut from the DVD. Is this song not in the public domain? Maybe it wasn't in 2005. I don't know. Very strange. It's not on the DVD. It's not great, but it definitely helps because at least that puppet's face is funny. Oh, yeah. Watching her wig blow off is very funny. <laughs> Followed by Jim Neighbors' yeah. pants. It's worth noting. It's also just weird that Jim Neighbors' real singing voice sounds like someone doing a parody and i think it's just maybe because like his his speaking voice is actually what his speaking voice sounds like that he comes by that alabama twang honestly and so there's something about the way he forms his vowels when he's trying hard to sound legit that sounds just a little bit off to my ear that makes it sound like someone doing a parody of opera instead of someone just singing operatically it's also weird to me because i think of this song as a jazz standard not as sort of an operatic ballad. So, uh, you know, I grew up knowing the Ella Fitzgerald recording. And so hearing it this way also just doubled down on kind of the soupiness of it. Just like a flame, love burned brighter than became an empty smoke dream that has gone, gone with the wind. It's so much yeah, better. Yeah, <laughs> it suits the song so much better in so many ways. The next song that we hear in this episode is uh, Black Eyed Susan Brown, which uh, underscores the, our dance number by the Dance Arrows. 
Scooter's uncle's favorite act. I feel like Scooter's uncle has a lot of favorite acts. Yeah. Or every I, week, every week, <laughs> something is Scooter's uncle's favorite. Well, and Scooter just found them hanging out in Scooter's uncle's office, which raises questions about a casting couch, which raises a lot of questions given what Dan looks exactly. like. Exactly. <laughs> Are you asking how they would sit on a couch? I was not asking that. I was asking a very different question. Let's move on. Oh, right over my head. Uh, so interestingly, this piece of music, Muppet Wiki credits in- incorrectly to Brother Bones. Brother Bones was the artist who most famously performed it. Uh, Brother Bones' most famous song being Sweet Georgia Brown, the piece of music that's the theme song of the Harlem Globetrotters. And Black Eyed Susan Brown, uh, all, we're covering all the Brown girls today, was the B-side of Sweet Georgia Brown. But I did some digging, and the actual writers of the song, the music was by Al Hoffman and Al Goodhart, and the lyric was by Herb Maginson or Maginson. Uh, that guy. So, uh, good job, Herb. You made it twice. Do you guys have feelings about Dance Arrows? This act starts out like it's going to be one of Jim's artsy fartsy, let's learn about a different kind of puppetry, where it's one of these things where you just see legs and they're doing sort of a tap dance and there's four of them. So you're supposed to think that it's two different Muppets tap dancing and sort of a, a dance off. And then as they progress and get a little bit tangled up with each other, the camera pulls back and you see that it's actually a four legged creature that looks sort of like the fry guys from the McDonald land commercials. Mm-hmm. And I think as with many of the kind of artsy puppetry bits, it loses out because they don't quite know how to end it quickly and correctly and with a good enough joke to wrap it up. But I, I don't know. I found it, I found it charming. I like the song. I like the dance and I didn't think it went on too, too long. So I, I'm a thumbs up on the Danceros, who by the way is performed by John Lovelady, who I know that Michal at least has a grudge against, which might be why she didn't like this number. I mean, part of it is that I, I don't like, the way that I, I don't know whether we're supposed to say whether the danceros uses they them pronouns, but <laughs> the way the danceros says to themselves, take it when one set of legs passes it to the other. I just really dislike that delivery. And also I'm just I'm kind of confused about they're not exactly dancers, they're not exactly Muppets. They're are we supposed to be impressed? Are we supposed to be entertained? Are we supposed to be like surprised and amused that there are two sets of legs attached to one body? I, the yes, more times I watched it, the more I was like, I, I'm supposed to be getting something that I'm, it's just eluding me. Yeah, that was my problem with it too. I, I mean, on its own, I think, I think it's very cute and, and I made a couple of gifts so they'll be on the website and, and but I, I, this is going to sound like so nerdy even for me, but like, I just, I want these things to make sense within the world of the Muppets, right? So like they don't, you know, that there's only so much logic that they need. But the fact that it seems to have two voices, because that's how the joke has to work when you're just seeing the legs, you have to believe it's two people, but then it only has one head and it only has one mouth. And and they talk at the same time. So it's not like the creature is doing two voices. It is actually speaking with two voices at once. I just, it didn't work for me. It, it sort of, it fell apart, like logically and, and like even fantasy worlds need to have rules and it, it, it broke them and it broke me. Um, I did not find it creepy. I found it very cute, but I just didn't, didn't think it was very funny. Did you ever see the back of its head? Well, it's a solid point. But you also just like fixed the joke and they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we do have a Ralph song in this particular episode. It's our UK spot. Sing it. Bowery Corner, foggy night, passing crowd, electric light. Oh, yeah. German chef, can of tin. Sausages are boiled within. So this is a song called Dog Eat Dog, and this definitely was the most obscure song uh, that has propped up so far. It took a lot of Googling, both on my part and David's part, to even figure out uh, (laughs) where this came from. Muppet Wiki credits it to Stephen Fern and Edward Kastner, but Edward Kastner was a composer who actually by this point in time was a music mogul who owned a successful music publishing company and a record label. And Stephen Fern, we we finally managed to track down. David, you actually found the end of the trail here. Right. So I looked up Dog Eats Dog in the ASCAP database, and there are a bunch of different songs with that title. Uh, But one of them was credited to a Stephen Fearn, which is spelled slightly differently than uh, the way that Muppet Wiki spells his name. And he was a member of the Pete York Percussion Band in the early 70s, which was a band that played around London. And uh, Edward Kasner, we should mention, was a British music mogul. So he was publishing and recording things in England. And on Stephen Farron's website, because he's still around, he mentions that in the early 70s, the band was playing a lot of comedy material. So I think it's a pretty safe assumption that if there was a band playing around England doing comedy material in the 70s, with a guy named Stephen Fearn, that 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 is where this song comes from. Even though, as far as we can tell, this Muppet Show recording is the only recording of this song. It is possible that it, it was not unusual for music publishers to attach themselves as authors to songs that they published in order to take a bigger part of the royalties from the writers. So it's possible that Edward Kasner somehow got himself a writing credit that way. Although in the ASCAP database. He is not listed as a co-author. Only Stephen Fear is listed as the author. I yeah, I tried to Google the lyrics because I was having a hard time like parsing the story, and I didn't want to listen to it again because <laughs> it's kind of bad. Um, and there are so many songs called "Dog Eat Dog," so I went and listened to it again. It just like it's so. I mean, it's sad. It's a really weird choice, as far as I can tell. Like, it's about street dogs scrounging for food, which they get from people who are living on the street or in some sort of poverty, right? So like a, a person drops something that the dog then takes and, you know, one dog gets it over the other, hence the title, not literal, fortunately, which it could be on the Muppet Show. So like nothing about this is happy except the one dog who gets a sausage. And it's a very bizarre choice. We should also point out that the singer here is Baskerville, this time performed by Jerry Nelson. Baskerville being a puppet who never really found a distinct personality. I find it odd that Baskerville is not British, just given the joke of his name. But he's real cute. He is cute. It does seem like something has gone wrong with him since they built him. Like his his little eyes look like they were drawn in Sharpie and need a little touch up. And it looks like his arms are tied together or sewn shut to hide something else. Like he's kind of matted. I don't know. He's He's a very old puppet at this point and maybe he needs a bit of a revamp yeah his eyes look like muppet glasses to me like they look look like scooter's eyes but i don't i think they're just his eyes 
both Baskerville and Rolf have a different kind of nose than the rest of the Muppets have. They have this shiny little black plastic nose that is, I, I think, supposed to make it look more like they are actual dogs, which makes sense. But it, when I see them both together and I see that uh, the inside of Rolf's mouth also like doesn't have a, a uvula and a tongue the way that most of the puppets do, um, it, it makes them look like they came out of a different era. It is a little bit surprising to see them together. Also, Baskerville's accent has morphed from bad Cockney to bad country yeehaw. Well, everybody's picking up uh, Jim Neighbor's accent here. So Wayne and Wanda try again. <clears throat> this episode uh, is one of the ones with a content warning on Disney+, Plus. so let's, let's just stipulate that before we play the clip. And now, Indian Love Call. When I'm calling you... Hey, baby, you It's really the visual, not the audio, but even so. Yeah, you would need to really see her weep when the Jerry Nelson Native American character shows up. She's so dismayed (laughs) that she sang Indian Love Call and it actually called one. Uh, Sigh. (laughs) So uh, I I think the... Only bit of trivia I, I want to talk about here is that uh, this is a, an operetta song. It's from an operetta called Rosemary with a music by Rudolf Frimmel, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein and Otto Harbach. And I think this is notable just because this is the most straightforward reference so far to Wayne and Wanda's sort of roots and point of reference, which is the pairing of Jeanette McDonald and Nelson Eddy, who were the stars of Rosemary on screen. This song was also an enormous hit. It was recorded many, many, many times over many, many, many decades. It's been on the charts multiple times. The Slim Whitman country version uh, was probably the most popular or the last most popular version, which you might remember in the movie Mars Attacks is the recording that they find will actually make the Martians' heads explode. When I'm calling you... Anyway, I was listening to another Muppet podcast where they talked about how this is a parody of the song because she sings it and then uh, an actual Indian shows up. But that's not actually a parody. That That is literally how the song functions in Rosemary. It's, she says, you know, it, it takes place in, in the mountains of Canada and uh, the first time we hear this, it's the recounting of a you know a legend from the hills, but it, it is literally used in the climax of the show to reunite these separated lovers because one of them sings the call and then the other one returns the call and that's how they find each other. So this is more a case of of the Muppets just doing something more literally than perhaps intended, but not actually all that much more. So we definitely weren't going to get through this episode without getting a hearty helping of yeehaw. So roll it. Life ain't nothing but a funny, funny riddle. Thank God I'm a country boy. Work's all done in sunset low. I pull out the fiddle and rosin up my bow. The kids are asleep, so I keep it kind of low. Thank God I'm a country boy. I'd play Sally Gooden all day if I could, but the Lord and the wife wouldn't take it very good. I fiddle when I can and I work when I should. Thank God I'm a country boy. 
Well, I got me a fine wife, I got me old fiddle, and the sun's coming up, I got cakes on the so this is definitely the newest song in the episode. It was a number one hit for John Denver in 1975. And it was written by John Martin Summers, who was a guitar, banjo, fiddle, mandolin player in John Denver's backup band. It was surprising to me to hear this song on this episode just because eventually John Denver himself becomes a guest on The Muppet Show and has a rather fruitful collaboration with The Muppets that includes producing both a Christmas album and a Christmas special. And I wonder if this sketch helped make that happen, if that sort of spark that relationship to start. So all, all along, it's been seeming like they're so in awe of Jim Neighbors, but really they're auditioning to have John Denver come on their show. I'd also like to point out that this is another appearance of our friends, the Gogolala Jubilee Jug Band. And they're two and a half teeth. <laughs> I like them better in this one. Yeah, they're back up here, which I like. This directly contradicts what I said about Willkommen in the Joel Grey episode, because right, this is done totally straight. And I find it delightful, even though I don't particularly like the song, right? We have established that I am very much not a country boy. <laughs> this is not at all for me. But it works, I think, because it's fun. Um, Jim Neighbors is clearly having fun, whereas Joel Grey seemed a little bit like he was going through the motions in that number to me. But I don't know. I find this really delightful. And there's something we have already recorded the Sandy Duncan episode, but you don't, you haven't heard it yet. So I don't know. I don't know if I will say this in the future. How's that? Take that time. But when they do this kind of thing and they just sort of bring in all manner of Muppets and it makes it feel like this weird rep company, I, I really like it when it, when it works like this. And I think this really works. It's just like everybody's having a good time singing with your neighbors. Yeah. It's so joyful. The exuberance of Baskerville dancing his little ears off in the front just warms my heart. Yeah, definitely gifts. I also want to shout out, did, did you guys say that uh, the cat's name is cat gut? Yeah, we looked that up. It's it, I, I find that cat deeply creepy and its name is cat. Gut. We, yeah. So there's, there's a, a cat Muppet uh, in the main backup group who only sings some of the words. I actually rewound this multiple times because I found it very funny because it's like, it's a cat who looks like he's been like bonked on the head or something. <laughs> he's only sort of with it and only just randomly sings some of the words. It's very funny. I was a little bit distracted that the pigs who are clapping along with the song are not in sync with the actual sound of the hand claps. So their powers combined kind of situation. The cat can only get some of the words. The pigs can only get one out of every few beats, but they manage it. Ready! Three, two, one, fire! We've arrived at our shot out of a cannon segment. We're going to talk about the elements that became canonical in The Muppet Show. One thing that we discover early on that uh, becomes canonical to a degree, although we're getting some conflicting information here, is the name of our theater. And all of this, all of this is coming to you, by the way, from the Benny Vandergast Memorial Theater. Uh, we on The Muppet Show owe everything to Benny including three months back rent. So we do eventually learn that Scooter's uncle is named J.P. Gross. So Scooter insisting that his uncle owns the theater. Uh, I don't know. I'm beginning to suspect that it may all be a ruse. Well, I mean, theater, it's the Memorial Theater. So it's named after someone who's dead. So the owner wouldn't necessarily be the person who has a Memorial Theater. But they owe Benny the rent. Maybe that's Benny Vandergast LLC. Yep. Uh, this also um, establishes would very much in canon that Kermit is maybe actually not a good producer. It's really a running theme throughout Muppet stuff into today that the Muppets are consistently in debt. 
and he seems to not really ever pay anybody. So that's um, that's something to think about. Well, I mean, uh, there's sort of the bigger question, which is the Muppet show within the show is not a very good show. Like we've already pointed out there are stretches of time when there's no one on stage. Uh, the comedian is terrible. The acts are widely variable in quality. Statler and Waldorf seem to be the ones who really have their finger on the pulse. They do consistently have a full house though. So unless it's all comped, which it could be, you know, I have to assume they're bringing in some money, but well, we've um, also noticed that a lot of the people in the audience are also performers. So I think it might be an open mic situation. Is this actually a talent show? Is this just (laughs) everybody's going to have their turn? So uh, I went Googling for Benny Vandergast to find out if there was any significance to that name. I discovered via the TV tropes website that there is a horrifying fan theory that uncle deadly's real name is Benny Vandergast and that he was killed by his critics and therefore JP gross renamed it in Benny's honor. I do not like this theory. I do not hold by this theory. Although Vandergast, which would be, I guess a Dutch name and gast is like the word for ghost, I think. So there's like at least a little kernel of something there. Anyway, we won't actually meet JB Gross until second season. <laughs> so it's all irrelevant now. It might as well be Benny Vandergast, who might as well be Uncle Deadly, whom we also have never met yet. I just wanted to point out that the whether this is your first time meeting Scooter or your fifth or sixth time meeting Scooter, he's been pointing out relentlessly that his uncle owns the theater and it's kind of already played out before it even begins. Man, he's a little shit. I take back everything I said about loving Scooter. <laughs> oh, I thought we were going to fight about this. Good. Uh, <laughs> so, so we've gotten slightly ahead of ourselves. This is um in this is where we meet Scooter. Except if you're watching in the order that this is it on Disney Plus, you've already met Scooter. But um, here's here's the clip. I'm your new gopher. Gopher? Uh, no, no. We have frogs and pigs and chickens around here, but we've never had a gopher. Matter of fact, you don't even look like a gopher. <laughs> Yeah, well, you don't understand. You see, I'm your new gopher. Yeah, I'll go for coffee. I'll go for sandwiches. I'll go for anything you need. Yeah, well, I work real cheap, and I got plenty of ideas for your theater, and I'll start tonight, okay? Uh, Listen, kid, I'm sorry, but uh, you're too young, you don't have any experience, and I don't have any money for it in the budget. Yeah, my uncle owns this theater. Uh, You start today, get me a cup of coffee, your salary is 20 a week. Stand by for the next number. Could you make it 25? Are you kidding? I can't afford it. Gee, my uncle would be really disappointed. How about 30? Okay, just circling back to Kermit being a bad producer, he just negotiated against himself. (laughs) 25 would have been fine. But I do appreciate that he's paying his interns, which is still a big issue in theater in 2021. From that perspective, this sent a chill down my spine. (laughs) (laughs) I did look it up uh, in... uh, Adjusted for inflation, uh, $30 a week is $138.67. You know, not great, but for an intern stipend, it could be worse. Pretty standard. Considering what a shit Scooter is, (laughs) more than he deserves. Scooter is played by Richard Hunt, who himself was the youngest and newest of the main Muppet performers. So one has to wonder if there's a little bit of their real relationship between Richard and Jim playing out in these characters, obviously heightened for comedic effect, but you know, I, I want to be on Scooter's side as much as the shit is he is. And I wonder if there's a little bit of him masking his, his own self doubt at being able to, 
to hack it with with the more experienced Muppets in the same way that uh, maybe Richard was feeling as as the youngest of the main Muppet performers. And maybe there's some weird gratification in there where, you know, as much as Scooter refers to Kermit as boss and chief and supposedly works for him, Kermit does have to bow to Scooter's every whim. <laughs> Put on all Scooter doesn't stay it. a dick forever. It's, you know, and I love the idea of Scooter being kind of annoying. Like the everything about Scooter in this episode, you know, being overly eager, making suggestions, following people around. There's a great bit where he's like like following Kermit so closely <laughs> that Kermit gets annoyed and, and pawns him off on George. Um, that, I, But it's, it's just the My Uncle Owns the Theater stuff, which, you know, a, a, again, like watching it in 2021, where we're talking so much about privilege, like that anytime he's challenged, his response is, My Uncle Owns the Theater. Like, no, fuck all the way off. Like, I cannot handle that. Um, and it also, like, wouldn't his uncle, I mean, I understand, like, there's not a lot of time. The storytelling has to be very quick. But, you know, it, in, in in real life, he says about the Muppets, wouldn't, like, his uncle would, would make a phone call or write a letter and say, hey, you're hiring my nephew as an intern. Like, the fact that he just shows up actually makes me think that he just shows up, right? That his uncle has nothing to do with it. One day they're going to get a letter from J.P. Gross that actually says, I've never seen this kid before in my life. <laughs> well, there you go. That um, that is the running gag is is the problem with it for me. That he's annoying is actually, I think, sort of endearing. And I love how annoyed Kermit gets and how dismissive he is. Like when he, when Scooter introduces himself, he's like, cute, cute name. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and that's a, that's a decent running gag that we get to. Next, we've got our talking houses sketch and i would like to posit that the reason the talking houses got retired after season one is because after this joke they realized it was all downhill as much as i want to shout out the tough pigs twitter account for the talking houses the talking houses now have their own twitter account it is funny and you should check it out but it is impossible to top this joke my wife's not feeling well Oh, sorry to hear it. What's the trouble? She's got the shingles. <laughs> uh, gets me every time. <laughs> I have nothing to add. No. What, are you, what, what else can you say? Yep. They did it. It's, talking houses have reached their apex. And so soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is only their second appearance. Yeah. Muppet News Flash. We essentially have the Gomer Pyle character appearing as a gas station attendant. There are aliens. That's about all we need. There's uh, one of these blackout segments where the curtain opens and they're in front of this elaborately painted backdrop. It's a chance to have a quick gag. Jim invites Animal to break a leg. Animal says, oh, thank you, and picks up his mallet and obliges. Uh, Jim Neighbors does not have a, a cast later, so I guess we're going to assume he's okay. We've got an at the dance sketch. There are some unremarkable jokes here, although the the headless guy that we had just seen backstage and George, whom we had also just seen backstage, are both suddenly on stage now. So I don't know how they did that, but I'm going to guess that they walked from backstage to the stage. <laughs> <laughs> that is how that works. Usually. But they did it in. Like a couple of seconds. They really had to hustle. There's no costume change. Been there. <laughs> uh, our our friends, the DVD pop-ups, did confirm what we uh, suspected in the Valentine's Day episode, which is that George was introduced for the Valentine's Day episode and was retired fully after season one. 
though he would appear as a background alas george player in some later stuff alas we, we look forward to beauregard though so in this at the dance sketch we also have one of my favorite muppets in the entire universe here she is oh i just love this music uh, are you listening to me your voice is music to my ears <laughs> It's the loud at the dance sketch lady. She's my favorite Muppet of the week or maybe of the month. She screeches and she's abrasive. And that's the setup for every single gag that she does. And is there an element of misogyny to the way those gags are set up? Yes. And does it work anyway? I'd argue yes. Um, Our pal Ryan Rowe from Tough Pigs, to whom I owe the entire concept of favorite Muppet of the week. That is a Ryan bit. Uh, he once took it upon himself to string together every single one of the Loud Lady appearances. So there's a YouTube video, and we'll link to that. And give yourself the gift of a minute 46 of Jerry Nelson just risking vocal damage in the name of comedy. At the Dance also gives us uh, a twofer for our most of its time joke of the week. Uh, trigger warning, I guess, for 2021. <laughs> You know, my doctor says I'm getting the Asian flu. What did he say to do? He says take two fortune cookies and he'd call me in the morning. Uh, Do you believe in the hereafter? Oh, yes. Ah, then you know what I'm hereafter. Ah, so many contenders. I laughed out loud at that second one. (laughs) I did too, but not at that first one. No. I mean... They're all contenders for most of its time moment of the week, but that first one is a contender for most horrible 2020 or 2021 joke. I don't know. No. Yeah. I don't really believe in cutting these things, but I think given when they have released these, they they might have just lifted that out of at the dance and nobody would have noticed. But <laughs> You don't believe in cutting them. You believe in and clipping them. Now we've included in our them. podcast, so we're... <laughs> Yeah, we're no better. Being of its time in another way, uh, I I watched this with, with my mom, and between uh, Wayne and Wanda's bit and uh, at the dance, she said this episode felt extra like Lawrence Welk to her. <laughs> and I don't know if if it's the uh, combination of at the dance being in this plus uh, operetta plus Jim Neighbors singing in his strange operatic way, but. It, thought that was interesting. <laughs> the funny thing about At The Dance to me is that it's very reminiscent of a regular laughing bit where they would have everyone at like a very hip party and the camera would just sort of zoom around and people would deliver one-liners there. So this is sort of like the halfway point between the like very much unfashionable Lawrence Welk show and the very hip laughing, taking the joke format of one and sort of the setting of the other. And sometimes the joke is that people explode. Or their noses come off and stick to each other. D- does that happen on so last So much body horror. <laughs> Next, we've got our talk spot. Jim Neighbors is trying to talk about his astrological sign. There are other things interrupting him. I'm sort of an old country boy, and I feel right at home with all these chickens and roosters and oh, pigs. Yeah. Right. Especially that Miss Piggy. I just love her. Oh, oh Piggy Lee. You called my name. Hey, Miss Piggy. <laughs> Uh, Piggy, if you don't mind, uh, Jim and I are just trying to hold a quiet conversation. Oh, go go right ahead, Jim. Mind me. Tell me one thing: I never know whether to call him Jim or Gomer. 
<laughs> well, I guess it is kind of confusing. You see, I played Gomer Pyle on television. Gomer for Pyle, so long. I love Gomer Pyle. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, I played him for so long. I guess I got I got confused myself. But one notable thing, if you listen really closely, there you can hear Kermit call Piggy Piggy Lee. Apparently, was briefly her name as a as a joke on Peggy Lee, and then they they dropped it really fast. <laughs> they dropped it because they were afraid that it would offend Peggy Lee. <laughs> Interesting. Little did they know that Miss Piggy Star would surpass Peggy Lee's. <laughs> she should have taken it as a compliment. <laughs> well, she's literally immortal, so. Well, there you have it. Uh, we speculated last week about whether the, or I speculated last week about whether the um, the Ruth Buzzy talk spot was improvised or not. Uh, and this feels super improvised, mostly in that it's not very funny. <laughs> but, like, they're talking over each other. Kermit's kind of a dick to Piggy in that moment, and some of that could be the run-of-the-mill misogyny that we keep noting you know like you know piggy the men are talking but i it also just feels sort of like an accident of tone that maybe a second take would have fixed i don't know did you guys track that at all i think you're right that it's probably improvised or at least jim henson and frank oz might have been working from more or less a script but uh not had jim neighbors prepped so that they could get a more realistic and accurate reaction out of him he does seem very comfortable and happy to be there which i appreciate i like that this flipped the typical script of of talk spot in the sense that since we have a male guest it's miss piggy being all horny instead of kermit being all horny i did like that yeah it did. there's something sweet about uh <laughs> we've got jim neighbors here in his gomer pile of voice and piggy insists it drives her bananas why not i guess if they can do it to women they can do it to men We've got Fozzie dealing with his hecklers by telling them that he will tell them his best joke, which is uh, another contender for most of its time or of no time, terrible time joke uh, of the week. (laughs) I'm going to tell you my best joke. And if you don't laugh, then I'll never come back out on this stage again. Okay? It's a deal. (laughs) Oh. Ah. Ah. Uh, uh. (laughs) These two cannibals were talking. One cannibal says to the other cannibal, Who was that lady I saw you out with last night? The other cannibal says, that was no lady. That was my lunch. (laughs) 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 I got you. I got you. And I lied. That was my worst joke. Oh, I love me when I'm good. Pacing, timing. Why did we laugh at that terrible joke? Either we're getting soft or we're in the first stages of senility. I would not trust Fozzie as the arbiter of the quality of his own jokes. Never. <laughs> yeah. We do have another clip of Fozzie telling Kermit that he's been getting some really great jokes out of Scooter. Cute. Cute name. <laughs> the trouble is, you see, he's following me all around and giving me these jokes for my act, and they are awful. Fozzie, how would you know? So rude. <laughs> So true. <laughs> it's true. A little bit of snark out of Kermit. Do you want to talk about the cannonballs thing? Yeah. So I didn't get this joke at all. I had, uh, intended to bring it up to ask you all to explain it to me because Fozzie's diction is so bad. I thought he was telling a joke about cannonballs. <laughs> and it wasn't until I listened to an episode of the podcast, A Feat of Lunatic Daring, which is another Muppet Show rewatch podcast, where they talked about the cannibal jokes that I realized that that's why it's funny because. 
she was his lunch because cannibals eat people. Anyway, uh, I'm a little dumb. Fozzie's a little mumbly. It all came together yeah. to be a disaster. <laughs> it's sort of neither of those things. It's a weird, it's, he says cannab- cannab- cannibals, right? Yeah. It's like Kermit saying alligators. <laughs> There's a bit at the end of the show. I had the same thing happen to me in a different spot. There's a thing at the end of the show that I clipped. Jim, I hope you had a good time. I sure did, Kermit. But tell me, who was that little fella that kept following me throughout the show? Oh, that, that Scooter. His uncle owns the theater. You called? No, I didn't. Oh, that's okay, Kermit. He was real nice. He picked up my coffee and he picked up my wardrobe. Yeah, I even picked up his accent. Well, golly. Uh, be careful he doesn't try to pick up your paycheck. Shut I'm fuzzy. I'm thinking. Well, I'm saying goodnight. We'll see you all next time on The Muppet Show. Golly. Golly. So before the rest of the cast comes on, Scooter says, I'm shocked. Yeah, it took me a few watches to get that. Casting aspersions. Same. Yeah, I had no idea what that what was happening. And so like, and then that throws off everything that comes after if you don't know what he's saying. I just think it's interesting that in uh, an episode where there's an entire sketch that we're not bothering to talk about because it's not very interesting, where they make fun of Jim Neighbor's accent, like that's the whole point of the sketch is misunderstanding what he's saying. It's actually two Muppet performers who we had a hard time with and therefore didn't get jokes. Well, that's an episode. Any final thoughts, anyone? Uh, I did make another Fozzie clip just to tie us back into last week. This is his joke from the opening. My cousin is so thin, he paints his head gold and rents himself out as a flagpole. Just, you know, more body shape conversation. I can just picture the writer's room doing a 10 minute brainstorm where they said, all right, my so-and-so is so fat. My so-and-so is so thin. My so-and-so is so tall. My so-and-so is so short. And that's, they just did all of those jokes at once and then portioned them out across the episodes. It's totally vaudeville. It's totally of its time. And it's not, it doesn't, if we hadn't just talked about the Ruth Buzzy episode and how much some of that stuff bothered us, I don't think I would have noticed it at all, but because we did. I did. There's there's a lot going on there. I thought you were going to talk about how he takes off his hat and puts it onto his face as though he so can't cute. stand his own talent. And I I do love how Fozzie doesn't even think of his hat as a prop. He it's just an extension of himself. And when he takes off his hat, you know that he's feeling strong feelings or that something has really struck him. I I do love that about his performance. Yeah, the physicality of Fozzie's neuroses is deeply relatable. (laughs) I just wanted to say, just as a random aside, if you're watching this and you went in knowing nothing about Jim Neighbors, I actually recommend going and looking up some of his episodes of The Carol Burnett Show to get more of a sense of his range. And many of his albums are available on all of your favorite streaming services. So if you want to hear him sing uh, anything from Broadway to light pop to gospel, you can get a sense of that if that's your thing. It's not mine, but it might be yours. That does not sound culturally uplifting. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our discussion of the Florence Henderson episode, when we'll be joined by author and internet personality, Amy Spaulding. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Bryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy.
Yes, there will be gifts. 